This is Asha Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. Two years into the pandemic, and in many ways, we are only beginning to learn about the long-term effects of the coronavirus. Those living with long COVID may experience fatigue, shortness of breath, brain fog, and more. Today on the podcast, we'll discuss the latest research and what clinicians may need to know about the emerging population of patients with long COVID. Plus, we hear from a speech-language pathology student who, following a case of COVID-19, noticed unanticipated changes. Hear how she says her experience affected how she approaches her patients. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Two years into the pandemic, it's more important than ever to prioritize the language and literacy skills children need to succeed. Learn how the Hannon Learning Language and Loving It workshop can help. Visit www.hannon.org slash imagine L-L-L-I. Whether it's fatigue, shortness of breath, or even diabetes, those with long COVID are finding their lives interrupted by a large variety of symptoms. Our two guests will address those and other symptoms, especially cognitive effects of the condition. Mary Kennedy is an SLP and a faculty member at Chapman University in California, where she studies cognitive issues related to both brain injuries and COVID. Mary brings clinical and research expertise to the subject. She assists patients with long COVID in a clinic at Chapman. Joel Van Eaton is the Executive Vice President of PAC Regulatory Affairs and Education at Broad River Rehab, a long-term care company. In this role, Joel researches and speaks on long COVID trends as part of an education series called Data Speaks. In June, Joel will be a speaker at the 2022 ASHA Healthcare Summit. It's called Grand Rounds in COVID-19 Rehab. To begin the conversation, I asked Joel what he was hearing from clinicians during his presentations on the subject. One of the things that's interesting as you read through the, the research is the newness of the symptoms that are showing up in people's repertoire of diagnosis, if you will. And one of the questions that we got from that presentation that we did centered around the whole issue of things like diabetes, but also thyroid issues. And that was an interesting question. And as we researched that, discovering that there are both hypo and hyperthyroid issues that have begun to service as well related to the long haul issues. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've heard a lot about is brain fog, and that's a cognitive issue. Mary, could you speak a little bit to brain fog? What is that experience like for patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think as we've talked to some clients who have brain fog, it's often also related to fatigue. So they often are maybe not able to distinguish brain fog from mental fatigue. Physical fatigue is one thing, but kind of a mental overload or fatigue is also co-occurs with what's called brain fog. Brain fog, it has often to do with kind of feeling overloaded, but yet there may not be any real reason that they can identify for being mentally, cognitively overwhelmed or overloaded. It tends to slow people's thinking. They kind of have trouble keeping track of maybe a conversation that they're having maybe with two other people. And sometimes the fatigue and the brain fog kind of go together. And so far, it's kind of hard to separate those, at least in the people that I've talked to. Joel, I can imagine at Broad River Rehab, some of the clients may already have memory disorders or be dealing with fatigue. Can you talk about tracking symptoms in long COVID? I can see why it would be 
important because of the pre-existing conditions, but also are you looking for new conditions or issues with residents? I think that's one of the things that is really on the radar screen now, creating pathways for really having our antennas up for some of the new things that are showing up for people and thinking about particularly those folks that do have cognitive issues already in the long-term care setting, being attuned to the new issues that might arise related to COVID and being able to identify those things. When we think about brain fog issues and the other kind of cognitive issues that might show up related to this, impacting all of the other kinds of symptoms that might show up that those individuals may not be able to communicate. So being attuned to some of the ways that those might present in an atypical way with a resident that has cognitive issues that may have cognitive issues now because of COVID, that may have peripheral nerve issues and chronic pain, uh, may have fatigue or uh, other kinds of issues that are showing up that are causing them distress or discomfort, trying to be able to be attuned to those and assess for those as we're treating our patients and being able to communicate those to the interdisciplinary team to have appropriate care pathway development. Mary, populations you've worked with are those with traumatic brain injury or mild traumatic brain injuries. And I know you presented at the ASHA convention about some of the ways treatment for long COVID could resemble treatment for long TBI or some of the ways that you treat long TBI might be applicable for long COVID. Could you speak to that? Sure. In contrast to long-term care residents, the population that we've worked with are individuals who have long COVID or who identify as having that and are trying to get back to work or school or do things at home the way they did prior to having COVID. So a really different population than what Joel described, but, but nonetheless still very important. So the individuals that have reached out to us um, for some assistance are people who have personalized, individualized functional goals that they need help with. And because we've not seen this before, this particular diagnosis, we've of course then looked to other populations that we have experience with um, who may be similar. And so that mild TBI group, several of us around the country have kind of had this same thought. And so we started really kind of looking at what was emerging about particularly the cognitive and communication problems that these individuals have with long COVID and realized that there were some similarities at this stage that we know of between mild TBI and long COVID. Not that the diagnosis is the same. We know it's very different. But first of all, we know that that in the mild TBI group or the MTBI group, there are clusters or symptoms of clusters or subgroupings that have come about. And as the data continues to roll out and we are getting a better handle on maybe some of these subgroups or phenotypes of long COVID, we can begin to think about the group that has more subtle cognitive communication problems like difficulty with brain fog and fatigue, which results in attention problems, maybe difficulty keeping track of things, becoming more forgetful, and just staying organized. We have some assessment tools for mild TBI that are valid and sensitive, but some of our tools that we've used historically are not terribly sensitive. And many of us have gone to more personalized or contextualized assessment procedures involving self-report and questionnaires that are standardized and have been researched very thoroughly. 
we spend a lot of time interviewing using a whole variety of questionnaires that are really solid and informative. And then we begin to think about what their personal goals are, what the big issues are that are happening at work or at home or you know, in their community as they try to resume some of their former life. Because that mimics what we do with individuals with mild TBI or MTBI, then we really started to look at some of the approaches. So many of the cognitive rehabilitation therapy approaches, for example, the use of metacognitive or thinking about your thinking strategies to come up with person-centered goals and individualized strategies is the way we've been managing and helping those that we've seen with long COVID. So some of them may have attention problems, but some of them don't. Some of them may have some memory impairment and some of them do not. We've used very personalized approaches with these folks similar to the MTBI. What I'm hearing is two very different needs based on population between the two of you, but both using a person-centered approach. Joel, I was glad to hear you mention the recovery path. I'm trying to figure out what that trajectory is going to look like for people because, of course, everyone wants to know when we see them, how long is this going to last? Am I going to have this forever? And we have some preliminary data, but in these different subtypes that are emerging around long COVID, we actually don't know the extent or the longevity of the symptoms. Joel, as you were talking about the diabetes and the thyroid issues, and of course, all the other medical issues that some individuals with long COVID are having, one of the areas I think that's going to be critical for rehabilitation specialists is to assist individuals who have more cognitive problems figure out how to also manage their now medical issues. We have done some of that in MTBI or mild TBI work, but again, that also speaks to the need for an interdisciplinary team. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, Mary. In relationship to, in our practice in particular, we have a requirement for what's called a baseline care plan that has to be developed within the first 42 hours of the resident being in the facility. It's a real opportunity for us to think through some of these issues related to long haul, in particular, those patients that come in, we know that have had COVID. The, the interesting thing about this disease process, as you know, and much of the research that, that we've read and are sort of speaking about indicates that a number of the people that are presenting with these new symptoms didn't even have symptomology with COVID. It's a really interesting and unique challenge to be able to engage people from a person-centered approach and to be able to identify some of these things. And one of the interesting things from the long-term care perspective too, and it's just a data transfer issue between hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. I know CMS is working diligently on, on a number of these issues as well, as far as transfer of information. But you get that information from the hospital and it comes to the skilled nursing facility. It doesn't always have the comprehensive approach to the chronic issues that people might have. So people might end up back to the thyroid issue with a thyroid issue and never even know they have a thyroid issue until someone says, hey, maybe we should check those thyroid function studies. These are the kinds of things that we really need to be able to help our clinicians understand the variety of things. When you got somebody that comes in, as we've been talking about with the cognitive issues, well, if you've got somebody with hypothyroidism, that might present 
with some of those sort of cognitive issues, uh, some of the emotional issues, depression, some weight gain, other kinds of things that are sort of common with hypothyroidism and never be discovered as being hypothyroid until somebody decides to check that out. It's a unique issue. And when we begin those conversations uh, with the residents and the families, when they first come to our facilities and however you engage residents from your perspective, initially, it's so important not to sort of negate or to overlook the kinds of things that may be true related to the fact that they had COVID. That is so true, Joel. One of the challenges that we have faced is that a lot of the individuals who have come to us were never tested for COVID because, as you know, we didn't have the tests. The tests were not available. Um, You're talking about in the very beginning of the Right, in the beginning, Mm -hmm. right. But the group that we're targeting in our project is we're targeting those that have tried or are trying to get back to their lifestyle and their work and their school that they were doing before they got sick. Before we had tests, and actually there were still individuals even in this last fall who could not get tested. Here in Southern California, as Omicron took over, we were having lots of people in the population who couldn't get testing. So then they recover to an extent. They start going back to work or school. And then later, Joel, they notice that they're having these issues. So it may not be until they attempt to actually resume their regular life and those new stressors that come during this pandemic that they begin to notice that they're having these other cognitive issues. And yet they don't really have a positive test. We know that they can go get the antibody test, but that really is only available for certain populations of people, right? The health disparities kind of come into play here as well. So it's a really a complex problem. It really is. And I think to your point as well, I mean, how much of our population just never went and got tested or attempted to get tested? And so those people are out there as well that are still experiencing these issues ongoing. And when they engage the health setting, I think more and more, it's going to be incumbent upon us. One of the things that we talk a lot about in some of the trainings that we do as well through Broad River, different healthcare associations and so forth, this idea of health literacy um, and helping people understand if they're having some of these things to really be able to engage them from the perspective that they may have had COVID, but understanding what it is they need to do to be able to take care of these or to work through these issues now. From the health literacy perspective, what's interesting in some of the literature that we've been reading too, it comes up more and more now is the idea how that engages with the whole health equity conversation and helping people in this particular context try to think through issues of prevention from the very beginning. So rather than on the back end thinking about dealing with the long haul COVID, how can we help our patients understand the kinds of things, vaccinations and all of the things that people can do to help prevent themselves from getting COVID to begin with? Interested in learning more about how COVID has highlighted healthcare disparities? Check out the podcast archive and find an episode from September 2021 on this subject. Or find a link to that episode on the blog post for this episode at on.asha.org slash podcast. We're going to take a quick break. 
Support Fresh Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Quality adult-child interactions are key to building the best possible language, literacy, and social skills in young children. After two years of many missed learning opportunities, prioritizing these interactions in early childhood settings is more important than ever. Learn how the Learning Language and Loving It workshop can maximize the support you offer to educators, equipping them with the research-based, responsive interaction strategies that help all children flourish. Visit www.hannon.org slash imagine L-L-L-I. We're rejoining our panel in a moment, but first I want to introduce you to someone. My name is Sarah Eastman. I'm a second year graduate student at Mass General Hospital Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Sarah is studying speech-language pathology, and she caught COVID in January 2021. At the time, Sarah was on winter break. Her symptoms lasted for weeks, including a temperature that Sarah says was over 102 degrees and lasted for about 16 days. There were times I worried, like, am I going to make it through this? Am I going to, am I going to be okay? What's going to happen? During this time, Sarah was in isolation, sleeping close to 20 hours each day. When her fever broke and she was eventually able to leave isolation, it was two days before the new semester was to begin. Probably two weeks into the semester, I started to just notice that I was really fatigued. After two hours on in class, I needed to take a nap. Sarah's resting heart rate was in the 140s. She's a singer, and she told me she would have to monitor her heart rate while singing to ensure it didn't get too high. I was very fatigued doing almost anything. Just walking to the bathroom, I'd be out of breath or walking from one room to the next. Fatigue, brain fog, and an elevated heart rate kept Sarah from picking up where she left off at school. I was always that A student growing up. I was a really hard worker. I felt really kind of ashamed that I wasn't able to work the way that I had always worked. For me, this was kind of like a blow to my ego and to my self-esteem a little bit. What was the class that Sarah noticed she was having trouble with? Oddly enough, I'm in a cognition class dealing with cognition issues. And my professor had said to me, you're having severe brain fog and no wonder you're not able to perform what you wanted to on these exams. And she was kind of talking me through like parts of cognition we'd learned in class and explaining how it's relating to me in that very moment. Soon, Sarah received accommodations from the school. She would have a note taker, extra time for assignments and exams, and had they been in person, she would have had a space to take exams without distractions. Today, Sarah's health seems to be improving. She says she's feeling good overall. Her heart rate is in the 80s and 90s. I'm working with a therapist to kind of realize that I'm not the same person I was before COVID. I kind of went through a traumatic ordeal and learning to give myself some grace and understanding to know that it's okay if I'm tired. Not only has it changed the grace Sarah extends to herself, but it's also changed the way she greets her profession. I think it's made me more compassionate, not just in my practice, but in the way I talk to patients and just understanding what they're going through. I mean, if this is what I went through with long COVID, I can't imagine somebody that's going through a stroke or something else cognitively. And it really changes the way that I approach my patients and approach my field. I shared the last quote with our panel who are rejoining us now. We know that COVID numbers have been high and we know that it sometimes results in cognitive issues. I asked Mary and Joel if they thought there would be a greater sense of empathy or sympathy for those with cognitive issues, either among clinicians or the public. I think there definitely are going to be 
the consequences on the positive side of individuals just becoming more empathetic, not just for rehabilitation or speech language pathologists or nurses or not those in healthcare professions, but also the general public, I think. The other thing that I'll bring in here is just the sheer volume of support groups that are set up through social media around the world for long haulers. So I think that the support and the discussion and the openness of individuals who've had long haul COVID, that level of transparency is allowing us to have discussions about cognitive and communication problems in other groups of individuals like mild traumatic brain injury or multiple sclerosis or stroke. Just like the student said, it's affected her to have more empathy. But I think overall, globally, I think it's going to have a more positive impact to communicate it's okay to talk about these things and this is what I'm having and it's real and other people have other problems and now I understand it better. I think to that point is interesting is reading uh, through some material just in preparation for our conversation today. And one of the articles that I was reading through referenced a research paper where the individual who was studying this indicated that the long haul issues really are starting to be described as an epidemic now. So because so many people globally who are experiencing this and have experienced it, and being able to think of it that way, I think helps us uh, to be able to approach it in that more empathetic way. Thankfully, I was never infected, or if I was, I didn't know about it and, and haven't experienced the long haul issues, but I have friends that have, and I've watched them change as well in terms of now that they understand how that works, particularly in the long-term care setting, how they can use that experience to work with their folks that come to their facilities. I have to say, I tested positive not that long ago. Following that, I was really on edge. My symptoms were very mild, but afterwards, I was wondering, am I going to start to notice any cognitive issues? Am I going to start to notice a sense of fatigue? And some days, you know, maybe if I couldn't recall a word quickly or if I felt a little winded on a walk, I would wonder, did I get enough sleep or is this the start of something? Yeah, I think even for those who maybe not have experienced the actual disease itself, a lot of the research is talking about how lots of people are just experiencing the emotional issues associated with the unknown, I suppose, with fear, anxiety, depression, other things that come about beyond the fact that they actually had the disease. And you're right. I mean, I think that's a reality that we're having to deal with as well. What I've noticed among our graduate students here at Chapman is that because virtually all of us have known or know someone who's had COVID, and some of us know people who have long COVID, that there seems to be more of an empathy overall for any kind of stressor or major trauma or situation that we may have in our lives. During the pandemic and being ill at the same time, what I've discovered in just friends and colleagues and students is that it seems like everyone is talking more openly about the stressors in their lives without a lot of judgment. And this situation has allowed people to talk about it and then talk about other issues as well. So I think the transparency really is hopefully changing all of us as a society for the better. 
I think that's right. We've talked quite a bit as well, some other presentations that we've done, sort of the COVID-19 slant on trauma-informed care for long-term care. That's a new regulatory requirement for us from the state operations manual perspective. And we have talked quite extensively on the, the issues that arise for people that have had various health concerns and then related to the long-haul COVID issues in particular. And one of the questions we had in one of the last conversations that we had about that was in the long-term care setting, how do we approach dealing with some of these trauma issues that people have had, in particular related to their healthcare situations? And we have tools in our MDS that can do that. What was interesting about that was that people are reaching for resource to be able to engage various populations related to these kinds of issues, because I think you're right. There's an empathy that's grown globally just because of what's happened. It's really created a global community around this because we've all experienced to one degree or another. And I think that's a positive thing. In thinking about what you just said in our discussion about the global issue, Joel, I'm excited that we are making such amazing progress in the research as quickly as we are. And I've never seen really anything like this before in my lifetime in health. And we are getting answers and it changes weekly. And then you have to stay tuned. And maybe the answers are coming out of some study in Israel or Poland, or it's really quite exciting the way the global community, at least in researchers and clinicians are coming together. We're recording this. It's the beginning of March. I think of the middle of March as a time when it really started to take hold in the U.S. It's been a difficult two years for many, many people. And I'm just wondering right now if there's anything that you would want to share with clinicians listening to this episode. It has been two years, and today is the first day, it's March 4th, we're recording this, that on my campus, um, we've been able to take our masks off indoors. I think that should we ever have something like this happen again, and we most likely will, according to a lot of people, we've been here and we know more about what to do differently. I do think that two years from now, we're going to have a lot more answers. We're going to understand the complexity of this disease, and we will be providing better care to individuals who have the long consequences of it. And that's a bright future, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I think back to the conversation that we had around sort of the global global community that's risen around this, not just people that have had COVID, but people that haven't had COVID, has created, as you said, an empathy that wasn't there before. And that's an interesting thing about some things like this that happen when there's a tragedy that occurs. It often creates an opportunity for us to grow together, despite what our other differences might be. And I think that's happened. And I think one of the things that we encourage our speech language pathologists and the rest of our teams as well is that you have the opportunity in your practice to create that sense of community, that sense of excitement for the future, the sense that you have the ability to work together to see things get better. And to be honest, you might be the only person that person encounters in their day or in whatever sphere of influence they may have had throughout this whole pandemic where they see that sort of sense of hope for the future. That's what I would say that speech language pathologists and all of us who treat within the settings that we treat in have that opportunity to be that kind of beacon of hope for the future. 
it's a, a person-centered message. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. I appreciate you sharing your expertise and your knowledge, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all of our guests and Sarah Eastman for sharing her personal COVID story with us. Find Joel presenting as a part of the upcoming 2022 ASHA Healthcare Summit, Grand Rounds in COVID-19 Rehab. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hanlon Center. Setting the stage for language and literacy success depends on high-quality training for early childhood educators. Register for an upcoming Learning Language and Loving It workshop and see the difference you can make. Visit www.hannon.org slash imagine LLLI. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.